couple of announcements before we get started. Don't forget that we have a congregational meeting at 6 p.m. on uh, this coming Sunday. We have some very important business to go over, and I hope we'll have a plan set forth to how we're going to advance on the building situation. And we, do we have uh, do we have some materials for members? Yes, I have Okay, if you're a member, then you need to get a uh, report, annual report from Ken before you leave tonight, so you can read over that before the meeting on Sunday. <clears throat> also, we need a teacher to work with the kids on uh, Wednesday night. And seems like there's something else I needed to announce. The do what? The heater is working, and the toilets are flushing. We just hope that the. Toilets aren't working and the heat are flushing, right? So, and we hope that that continues till Sunday. Then we'll be in record territory. Seems like there was something I'm missing that I needed to announce. Oh, well, it'll come to me in the midst of uh, teaching, I'm sure. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All scripture is God-breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every Good work. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. And it occurred to me in the midst of reciting the verses that uh, what the announcement was. And that was we had a Sunday school meeting on Sunday with the teachers. And if you are a parent, then you need to be encouraged to make sure that your children have a good Bible. That doesn't mean expensive, but a good translation. That that's part of your parental responsibility is from the time I would say they're about six or seven years old, they ought to have their own Bible, even if you're the one who keeps up with it, for them to bring to church every time they come. Start training them from day one that the reason you go to church is to take your Bible so you can learn about your Bible. And a lot of times when kids don't have their Bibles with them, then there are some objectives that are trying to be accomplished by the teachers downstairs that uh, can't be accomplished if the kids don't have their own Bible with them. So they need to start learning from as early an age as possible once they start reading or get you know at least a year or two into the reading stage to have uh, a ch- good children's Bible or Bible that is their own that they have to take care of and keep up with. So just encourage you parents to... Watch that aspect of parental training. Okay, let's start with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to study your word this evening, to focus on how you have uh, outlined human history and your work in history what you are accomplishing in each dispensation, and specifically what you are uh, emphasizing in this current church age dispensation. Father, this is a unique time in history because of all that you have given each of us 
as believer priests and members of your royal family. Now, Father, we pray as we study these things tonight that we would be challenged with the responsibilities, the obligations that are ours as members of the royal family, as ambassadors for Christ and as royal priests, that we might advance to spiritual maturity, that we might glorify you in the angelic conflict and before man. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we examined the distinctives of the church age, and so tonight I want to move on and cover the last segment of what we need to emphasize on the church age, and that is the unique spiritual life of the church age. This is something that is unfortunately not taught, not understood by many different uh, pastors today, even those who claim to be dispensational. It is not something that was emphasized in any seminary courses I took on dispensationalism, and yet uh, it is definitely true. You go back and read the early dispensational theologians such as Lisbury Chafer, C.S. Schofield, some of the others, they clearly understood this and were pioneers in the study of the spiritual life of the church age. Sadly, this, is, this distinctive has been lost in subsequent generations, but there needs to be a restored emphasis to this. As I have stated before, there are, broadly speaking, two categories of theology. The first is replacement theology, and the second is dispensationalism. And these two are called that because of how they treat God's plan for Israel and the relationship between Israel and the church. In almost every major theological system, and theologies are systems, don't let that blow your mind or overwhelm you too much. Everything you think about in life is systematized in some way. It's either poorly organized in your mind or it's highly organized in your mind, but it is organized in your mind to some degree. When I was doing my uh, pastoral internship, I was working in a Southern Baptist church, and this was back in the late 70s, and there were that was in the days when they were first having the battles over between the, whether the conservatives would dominate the convention or not. And anyway, I was in this church, and the pastor that I was working under made a statement at breakfast one day that he was sort of proud of. You always hear this from people who are a little bit too caught up in academics and seminary life. Well, I'm not like all those other people. You know, it's just pseudo-pietism. I'm not like these people who try to systematize everything, as if that's the mark of excellence. And I said, well, you've got a system, just that yours is not consistent and organized, whereas other people make sure theirs is consistent and organized. But everybody has a system. And one of the greatest courses I learned a lot in, one of the courses I learned much in as a student at seminary, was a course on theological systems. And I took it in my doctoral work. And what we had to do was take a uh, systematic theology written by in different schools, whether it was Wesleyanism, that's Methodist theology or Reformed theology, Pentecostal theology, Lutheran theology, dispensational theology, Roman Catholic theology. That's pretty much your major theological systems. And you had to go through and outline what the system was and how each area of theology, theology proper having to do with God, the essence of God, uh, Trinitarian doctrines, the uh, Council of Divine Decrees, had to look at uh, pneumatology, the doctrines of the Holy Spirit, Christology, the doctrines of referring to Christ, soteriology, how they understood all the different uh, aspects of salvation and logically related them together in the order of salvation. You had to look at all these things within the system and show how it, it interconnected, but then compare system, compare and contrast system with system. And that is remarkable because that's how you learn to think. And that is how you learn to see why it is that there are certain things that make someone Reformed or Covenant theology or Lutheran theology, what those distinctives are and why they say the things they say, interpret the Scripture the way they do, and you begin to see these kinds of interconnections. Well, all your theological systems, whether it's uh, Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, Calvinism under Reformed theology, or Wesley, later Wesleyanism, or the out growth of Wesleyanism, which would be holiness theology and Pentecostal theology, 
Although a lot of Pentecostal theology was influenced by dispensationalism, at its core they're all replacement theologies, and that means that they confuse God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church, and generally speaking, they have the church replacing Israel in God's plan so that the church becomes um, the Israel of God today and the heirs in a spiritual sense of all the covenant promises God made to Israel in the Old Testament. Whereas dispensationalism draws a distinction that God has one plan for Israel and he ultimately will fill all the promises that he fulfilled to Israel. Now, the easiest way to see that is to show that the promises that God has already fulfilled to Israel, he fulfilled literally and exactly. So in the same way that he has already fulfilled those promises, he will fulfill the other promises. You don't shift from a literal fulfillment to a spiritual fulfillment. And that God has a plan for the church as a distinct body. In the church, there is neither male nor female, bond or slave, Jew nor Gentile. Ethnicity in relationship to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not a factor in the church. And so God has a distinct plan, program, and purpose for the church. And you do not confuse the two. Well, in, in the dispensation of Israel in the Old Testament, the spiritual life, is based on the faith rest drill. They were minus the Holy Spirit. So they're living the spiritual life, but without any uh, influence from God the Holy Spirit, and it's just based on understanding what they could of the Word and trusting God. Whereas in the church age, we have three distinct ministries of God the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of God the Holy or the baptism of God the Holy Spirit, indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, and filling of God the Holy Spirit. And we have um, a spiritual life that is based on God the Holy Spirit empowering and enabling every believer. It is God the Holy Spirit who makes the Word clear to us. He is the one who teaches us. So if there's not a proper understanding of this dynamic, and if it's understood out of a mystical sense, then you're going to end up in some sort of holiness Pentecostal or type of theology, which is sort of a let-go, let-God, that somehow I don't have to make decisions to apply doctrine. Somehow if I just confess my sins, then the Holy Spirit's going to uh, just sort of step in and make those hard decisions for me, and I won't really be tempted. Now, I know nobody here ever thought that, but uh, that's what a lot of, the idea a lot of people get when you talk about the filling of the Spirit and confession of sin, that somehow if I just confess my sins, that the Holy Spirit just takes over. And that's not what this is talking about. That's a form of mysticism that came out of some out of 19th century victorious life teaching. But what was right about that was that the unique emphasis in this age on the Holy Spirit that is not there in any other age. So we need to see that the spiritual life of the church age is unique and distinct and unlike that of any other period in human history. So we need to begin with the first point, which is to look at and to distinguish between the uh, seven post-salvation ministries of God the Holy Spirit. The first of these is performed by the Holy Spirit at salvation. Efficacious grace, this is when God the Holy Spirit takes the faith of a spiritually dead person. See, just because you believe in Christ, you're still spiritually dead. You're not saved because you believe. Nowhere does it say that in the Scriptures. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So when we put our faith and trust in Christ alone, our faith alone in Christ alone for salvation... God the Holy Spirit takes that faith from a spiritually dead person and makes it effective for salvation. That occurs at the instant of salvation, at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, efficacious grace. We're born not by our will, not by the will of man, not by flesh, but by the Spirit. Second thing that takes place, and all of these take place simultaneously and instantaneously at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. And they are non-experiential. So you can uh, 
uh, be sick with the flu. You can be on your deathbed. You can be like the thief on the cross and in maximum physical pain and misery, and yet all of these things take place instantaneously. First, efficacious grace, John 1, 11 to 12. Secondly, regeneration, Titus 3, 5. In regeneration, God the Holy Spirit cre- creates, simultaneously creates and imparts to us a human spirit. Remember, man has three parts. We have a human body, a human soul, and a human spirit. When Adam was created, he was trichotomous, had three parts, body, soul, and spirit. When Adam sinned, when Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he died spiritually. His human spirit became uh, inoperative so that he could not have a relationship with God. It is the human spirit that enables us to have a relationship with God and to understand spiritual things. So in order to have salvation, in order to have a relationship with God, we had to have a, a rebirth of that dead human spirit. And that's what occurs at regeneration. Titus 3.5 states, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Second or third, there is the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 3.16. The indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. He indwells us for the purpose of making our, our body the physical home, dwelling place for the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and specifically the Shekinah glory of Christ. Colossians tells us Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so God the Holy Spirit indwells us, indwells every believer. That indwelling never changes. It never varies. It doesn't get stronger. It doesn't get weaker. It is the same for every believer from the instant of salvation on 1 Corinthians 3.16. Fourth, we are sealed by God the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by God the Holy Spirit. In the ancient world, at the time in which the Scriptures were written, if you were to... uh, send a scroll to someone or send a letter to someone, you would take a piece of wax and seal it by dropping the wax on the fold and then putting the imprint of a ring on that, which would be a sign or mark of ownership, not unlike branding cattle. And uh, so we are sealed by the Spirit, which is a picture of the fact that, that we are marked as owned by God at the instant of salvation. So that mark can never be lost. We are sealed by God the Holy Spirit as a sign of our salvation, Ephesians 1.13 and Ephesians 4.30. Fifth, we are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. This means that God the Holy Spirit is used by uh, Jesus Christ, who in most of the passages it is Christ who is the subject of the verb. 1 Corinthians 12.13, the verb is passive. Uh, The subject is unstated. The means is still the Holy Spirit. So we are baptized by means of God, the Holy Spirit, by Jesus Christ, whereby we are entered into union with Him, identified with His death, burial, and resurrection, and we are placed into the body of Christ. That is the baptism by means of God, the Holy Spirit. It is not experiential. It is not indicated by any sort of of, uh, ecstatics, speaking in tongues, or any of the other... Uh, things that some people want to suggest are part of the baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't enter you into the higher Christian life. It is something that takes place in every believer at the instant of salvation. And we are all one in Christ as a result of that. Sixth, God the Holy Spirit sovereignly distributes spiritual gifts to us. We are given spiritual gifts at the instant of salvation. And then seventh, We are filled by means of God, the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. The first six cannot be lost. They are given irrevocably to us at the instant of salvation. We can't lose them no matter how sinful you are, no matter how reversionistic you might become, no matter how carnal you are, no matter how heinous the sin you commit. Nothing can change those first six. The only thing that can be changed is the filling of the Holy Spirit, the filling by means of the Holy Spirit, And when we sin, we break fellowship with God. It grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit so that this operation, which is related to sanctification, this operation is quenched. And God the Holy Spirit is no longer producing spiritual growth in us from the doctrine resident in our soul. In order to recover this ministry, we have to confess 
our sins to God the Father, 1 John 1, 9. And once we admit our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So anytime we sin, it instantly breaks fellowship. We lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. That operation is quenched and squelched, and it no longer goes forward until we confess our sins. So we don't just confess our sins once a day, once a week, but every time we sin. Now, the second point. First point on the unique spiritual life of the church age is that we have to distinguish between the various uh, ministries of God the Holy Spirit to every believer. This is a problem in some among some traditions, some churches, some theological systems, these are almost merged together. Filling of the Spirit, baptism of the Spirit, indwelling of the Spirit, sealing by the Spirit are almost viewed as synonymous. This is a failure to distinguish terminology and Holy Spirit ministries to the believer. So we have to distinguish these ministries. Now, the last one is a command to the believer that we are to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit, and we are also to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. This is the Christian life, walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Never before has there ever been uttered such a command to a believer. Never happened in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were at most a hundred different believers uh, who had some sort of endowment by the Holy Spirit. It was always in relationship to a task, some responsibility that God gave that individual in relationship to leadership in the nation Israel. Aholiab and Bezalel were the craftsmen who built the furniture in the, in the tabernacle and, in the temp, and later it was in the temple. They are the, the goldsmiths, the uh, silversmiths, the jewelers who put together the Ark of the Covenant, the breastplate for the high priest, and did all of that beautiful work. They were uh, given a temporary endowment of God the Holy Spirit to enable them to fulfill their task. You have judges who were uh, clothed. We're going to see that with Gideon on Sunday morning. The verb in the Hebrew literally means that Gideon was, was clothed with the Holy Spirit. That's a different concept than the either indwelling or filling in the New Testament. It's not related to his spiritual life. It's not related to his, his walk with God. It is related to fulfilling a specific task that God has given him. So there were judges who were filled by means of the Holy Spirit, like Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, uh, Samuel. Uh, kings were also uh, given this in temporary endowment by the Holy Spirit, Sam. Uh, Sam, uh, excuse me, Saul and David. Saul lost it because of disobedience, and when David sinned, he prayed, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, that should never be prayed by a church-age believer because God is not, will not take away the Holy Spirit from the believer because it is a different category of ministry. So we have a we are commanded to walk by means of the Spirit, and that is unique. And it's never, that is, that's never repeated in the tribulation period because the Holy Spirit's taken out of the way. The restrainer of Second Thess 2 is removed, so they do not have the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in the tribulation as we do today. It'll be like in the Old Testament. In the millennium, it will be different. There will be another special uh, empowerment of God, the Holy Spirit, in the millennium, but not like, um, but even more so than today. So we have to distinguish the church age. Second point, what we learn from the scriptures is that spirituality, the spiritual life, and carnality are mutually exclusive concepts. That means, if they're mutually exclusive, that means we must understand spirituality and carnality as absolutes. You're either one or the other. Galatians uh, 5.16 says, walk by means of the Spirit and it will be impossible for you to bring to completion the works of the flesh. That means that as long as we are walking by the Spirit, so we have two dynamics going on here. We're either walking by the flesh, which is the sin nature, or the Holy Spirit. As long as we are in fellowship, walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, in dependence upon Him, we cannot sin. It is impossible for the believer who is walking by the Holy Spirit to sin. That's the thrust and that's the significance of the, the Greek syntax. It's a double negative ume plus a subjunctive verb. 
It is impossible for you to sin. Well, you ask the question, well, then how in the world do I ever sin? Because instantaneously, maybe you're not even fully conscious or fully aware of the decision, but we decide to first to stop, break it down, break that decision down into time-lapse photography, slow it down into slow motion. What actually takes place is you make a decision to stop walking. Stop being in dependence on God the Holy Spirit. Then you make a decision to to submit or to yield to the sin nature, and then you make a decision to uh, commit the sin. That's the procedure. So, but the thrust of that syntax, the ume plus the subjective, uh, subjunctive of teleao means that it's impossible to bring to completion. You can pair that with uh, James chapter 1 where it talks about the fact that, that sin is conceived and um, is brought to, then it is brought to completion by lust. And you get the picture that, first of all, the idea occurs and we have a decision to make to stop walking by the Spirit or to keep walking by the Spirit. And once we make a decision to stop walking, then that the remaining stages are kicked into effect and we go through the process of yielding to the sin nature and then committing sin. But as long as we are making the decision to be dependent upon God the Holy Spirit and to then do what the Scripture says, that's what it, that's the, what the command to walk by the Spirit is tantamount to. It says every believer is led by the Spirit. We're led objectively by the overt commandments of Scripture, the prohibitions and mandates of the New Testament. So if we say, well, I'm going to depend on the Holy Spirit and commit the sin, then we're not walking by the Spirit. We've decided to stop walking. Walking by the Spirit means that I'm going to be in dependence on what God the Holy Spirit has taught me by His Word, and I'm going to put it into practice and um, not do whatever, not yield, follow the temptation of the flesh. So that tells us that you cannot be, it's not that you can be a little carnal and a little spiritual. It doesn't make the walking by the Spirit some sort of progress where uh, as you're a young believer, you're partially spirit, you're a little more uh, uh, carnal than you are spiritual, and then as you advance, you become a little more spiritual than you are carnal. It's either or, one or the other at every moment in time. So we learn from Galatians 5:16 to 18 that spirituality and carnality are mutually exclusive depending on how uh, we are relating to God the Holy Spirit. Now we use the diagram of two circles. The left circle represents those eternal realities, those first six uh, ministries of God the Holy Spirit. I mentioned earlier the baptism of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, the sealing of the Spirit, and then the right circle represents the temporal realities. If we are the the circles are white to represent the the concept of walking in the light. We will see that in our study of First John one uh, five and six on Sunday morning. When we are walking in the light, it's roughly synonymous to being filled by the Holy Spirit and to walking by the Holy Spirit. But as soon as we decide to stop walking by the Holy Spirit, then we are out of fellowship. We are walking in darkness. We are fulfilling the lusts of the sin nature. And the only way to recover then is through 1 John 1.9 and the confession of sin. Point number three, the precedent for the spiritual life then in the church age was set not in the Mosaic law, and the faith rest drill of the Old Testament, but in the Holy Spirit. The precedent is not in the Mosaic Law. The precedent is really in the uh, life of Christ, Jesus Christ in hypostatic union, lived His life in dependence on God the Holy Spirit. Now, When we look at the life of Christ, there are many things that Christ did in His own divine power. He performed many miracles in His own divine power. That's why we can say that when He walked on the water, that was evidence of His deity. 
when he cast out demons, it was a sign that he had authority over the demons and he cast them out in his own power. There were other t- sometimes where he cast demons out in the power of the Holy Spirit, and that was to teach the disciples that they too could use the Holy Spirit in that way. And that was related to their uh, apostolic ministry, and it's not something that continued on through the church age. But when he lived his life, when he handled problems, when he faced adversity, as he was advancing in his own spiritual life and his humanity, he did it by means of God the Holy Spirit. This is how he handled the testing when he was in the wilderness for 40 days, was in the power of God the Holy Spirit depending upon him, in the same dynamic that we have in the church age. So the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age believer was set not in the Old Testament, but in the... uh, life of the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ in hypostatic union. Point number four. The church age believer is therefore not subject to the Mosaic law, but he is under the higher law of spirituality as defined in Galatians. You have passages like Galatians 5.16, which talk about the law of love. The entire chapter of Galatians 5 is built on the principle of the law of freedom the principle of the law of love, and this is a higher law, also called the law of Christ, is a higher law than that of the Mosaic law. And it is based on the dynamic of God the Holy Spirit, not on our own uh, energy and our own effort. See, anything that the unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. Unbelievers can be moral. We can all be moral people. We can all... uh, exercise our our self-discipline and improve our lives to a certain degree without any dependence upon God. We can be good, moral, upstanding citizens. But that's not the spiritual life. The spiritual life goes far beyond that. It is energized by God the Holy Spirit. That's the whole point of Galatians chapter 5 and also Romans chapter 8. Point number five. The Holy Spirit, in turn, produces in the believer the character of the incarnate Christ. The Holy Spirit produces in the believer the character of the incarnate Christ. Galatians 4.19, Galatians 5.22 and 23, the production of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, against which there is no law. This is the character of Christ. It's uniquely produced by God the Holy Spirit. Uh, also seen in 1 John 2, 5, and 6, and John chapter 15, where it's talked about in terms of abiding in Christ. If we abide in Christ, He produces fruit in us. Abiding in Christ is tantamount to walking by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, and walking in the light. When we abide in Christ and we are in right relationship with Him, then God the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God that is in our soul and uses that to produce character in us. So as we walk by the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit then is the one who transforms our character from the inside out. So it is not a matter of getting up in the morning and praying that, Lord, make me patient, kind, let me have love and joy and peace today. But as you go through the process of learning the Word of God under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, walking in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit, using 1 John 1, 9, every time we fail and confess our sins, you see, we're all going to sin. That's a given. Some of us are going to sin a lot more. Some of you are going to sin in overt ways that shock everybody around you because you have a trend of your sin nature towards antinomianism and licentiousness. Others of you are going to have good moral lives because you trend towards antinomianism and legalism and self-righteousness. And so your sins are going to be sins that are much more subtle, sins that nobody else sees, but they're going to be sins of arrogance, sins of haughtiness, sins of judging, at least in your thinking, a lot of mental attitude sins that might not be apparent to somebody else, but are just as destructive, if not more so, than some of those overt sins that the licentious brethren get involved in. We're all going to sin, but the principle is that as long as we're still alive, God has a plan for our lives, and so we have a grace recovery principle in 1 John 1.9. As soon as we confess our sins, then God the Holy Spirit is then able to start working in that fruit production, character production 
ministry in maturing us and growing us in the spiritual life. Point six. Since the Holy Spirit is God and cannot sin, when the believer is filled with the Holy Spirit, he cannot sin while he is filled with the Spirit and walking by the Spirit. Therefore, the spiritual believer will magnify Christ in his inner life. Christ will be glorified. We will advance to spiritual maturity. John classifies it in three ways, bearing fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. And concludes the discussion by saying, by this, the bearing of much fruit, is my Father glorified. That is the process when we are advancing and growing as a believer. The analogy is to a plant. As the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and begins to produce that fruit in our lives. Remember, it takes a long time, by analogy with the plant, it takes a long time between the, the, uh, the uh, germination of the seed and the sprouting from the seed of the new life and putting forth the little, little shoot, and then that eventually grows, puts out a lot of leaves and develops a stalk, and it takes some time. Maybe uh, in the case of a vine, 60, 90 days before it ever produces fruit. Same thing is true in the life of, of a believer. There's a lot of spiritual growth that has to take place before fruit is produced. Once fruit be- begins to pr- be produced, that is when Christ is magnified. That is when the character of Christ starts becoming evident. And that's when God begins to be glorified. By this is my Father glorified that you bear Much fruit. Point seven. The production of the Christian life, therefore, depends on the filling of the Holy Spirit. Depends on the filling by means of the Holy Spirit and walking by means of the Holy Spirit. It is not dependent on our own effort, on good works, which, when we're controlled by the Holy Spirit, become wood, hay, and stubble. Now, the interesting thing is there's a lot of confusion over this. I was talking with uh, one of our members who recently moved, and they're going to another church somewhere else. And He said, you know, the problem with this church we visited was that they've taken grace to the extreme." So much so that if they were to call for volunteers of the church to come down and cut the grass, nobody would do it because somebody might think they were trying to work their way to heaven. See, that's absurd. But there are people who actually get that idea. Sometimes we have been guilty of so emphasizing the fact that you can't work your way to heaven, don't, don't think that you're going to gain brownie points by God by doing all these things, that we have left out the fact that there is a very real place for Christian service under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. And the only difference between, uh, let's say, um, a certain number of ministry or ser- service oriented works that are human good and those that are divine good, they're going to look the same to everybody who watches. The only difference is if we do it by when we're in fellowship, walking by means of the Spirit, then it's going to count towards gold, silver, and precious stones, and God uses it in our Christian witness and in our testimony, and it glorifies Him in the angelic conflict. But if we're out of fellowship, then it becomes human good. It's nothing more than wood, hay, and straw at the judgment seat of Christ, and it has no value. It's, that means there is a tremendous place for Christian social involvement. One of the things that has been such a problem in the history of dispensationalism is that we got caught up in a reaction to the social gospel movement of the late 19th century. The social gospel movement emphasized all kinds of do-goodism and altruistic activities that were really seen within their system of theology as a way to advance yourself spiritually and to earn your way to heaven. But those same activities, you go back even further into the 19th century and you look at people like George Mueller and Hudson Taylor and the missionaries and they were setting up orphanages and charities. See, that, that kind of social involvement got lost 
at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century in evangelicalism because it became identified with the do-goodism of the social gospel crowd. And what happened was conservatives and and, and fundamentalist believers, I use that in the historically correct term, which means that you believe in the five fundamentals of the faith, and the five fundamentals of the faith are the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, virgin birth, the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ, the reality of miracles and the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, and the literal bodily second coming of Jesus Christ. Those were the original fundamentals of the faith, and if you believed in that, you were called a fundamentalist. Now, that term has been misused and abused ever since then, and now it is used to uh, describe somebody who's some sort of extremist. But in the classic sense of the term, we're all fundamentalists, but the fundamentalists of the early 20th century were reacting to liberalism, theological liberalism. They were reacting to the do-goodism of the social gospel, and they threw the baby out with the bathwater. As a result of that, a lot of people came along and became critical in the mid-20th century of dispensationalists and pre-mills saying you don't want to get involved with the culture around you or having any kind, of, any kind of impact on the society around you. All you want to do is fold your hands and pray that the rapture will come so you can escape. And it was this caricature that was portrayed of dispensationalists, and there was always an element of truth in that because there were some people who did come across in their teaching of dispensationalism as if that's what they meant. But you go back before the impact of the social gospel movement and, and Protestant liberalism into the mid-19th century, you had people who were uh, dispensationalists at that time, people like Moody, uh, other believers who were clearly involved in trying to better or minister to the hurting people in the world around them from a position of being filled with the Spirit from a position of applying doctrine and not just saying, well, they're going to hell, so, you know, good riddance, and just turning their back on those who were less, um, uh, less prosperous or less blessed in society than, than they were. And we lost that in conservative evangelicalism, and it was a true, genuine compassion for lost people, true, genuine compassion for those who had less, for those who were poor, for those who were um, uh, orphaned, for those who had less, that was motivated by a, a proper understanding of doctrine and the proper understanding of works and production. It starts from the inside out, though, and the problem is that too many people came along and tried to use that as a barometer or measuring stick for spirituality. It's not. Altruistic endeavor is nice, it's good. If it's done in the filling of the Holy Spirit, then it's a, it's a wonderful uh, testimony to the compassion of our Lord and the compassion that is expressed in the Word. But it is not the benchmark of spirituality. So the difference between divine good and human good is whether or not you're walking by means of the Holy Spirit or walking according to the flesh, and one does not do away with overt Christian service, which is part of our priesthood, just because somebody might think they're trying to earn their way to heaven. That is just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Just another way Christians come up with trying to rationalize away obedience to the Word. And you see this in doctrinal churches sometimes because it's just so much easier to go on a little academic head trip and come to Bible class and learn a lot and... Uh, and not get involved with anything and not apply anything, just have a good doctrinal notebook filled with notes. So there is a place for application, but if it's not done under the Holy Spirit, Christian service is not done under the Holy Spirit, it's not really Christian service, and it is wood, hay, and straw. So, point seven was the production of the Christian way of life depends on the filling by means of the Holy Spirit and walking by means of the Holy Spirit. Well, what are the results? That's point number eight. The res results of the filling of the Holy Spirit are, number one, imitation of Christ. Our lives imitate Christ. He is the model. He is the one to whom we look, and our life imitates Him, our, our character. Galatians 4.19, Galatians 5.21-22. Second, 
result is there is true spiritual production or divine good described in John 15, 1 through 7. There is true spiritual production or divine good, John 15, 1 through 7. Third result of the, Holy, of the filling of the Holy Spirit is we understand the Word of God. We understand the Word of God. We come to a greater and greater understanding of the Word of God. John 14, 26 and 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16. So the first three results of the filling of the Spirit are one, imitation of Christ, Galatians 4.19, Galatians 5.21-22. Second, there is a true spiritual production or divine good, John 15.1-7. Third, there is the understanding of the Word, John 14.26 and 1 Corinthians 2.9-16. Fourth, witnessing. We do not witness to be spiritual. We witness as a result of being filled with the Spirit. We do not witness to be spiritual. Witnessing is not a means of spiritual growth. The functions of the priesthood, witnessing, giving, prayer, Christian service, these are part of our priesthood. They are not uh, they are the results of spiritual growth. They are not a cause of spiritual growth. Fourth, worship. We can't worship God. Or this is fifth under results of the filling of the Spirit. Fifth, worship. We cannot worship God unless we are filled by means of the Holy Spirit. John 4.24 We will worship Him by means of Spirit and by means of truth or doctrine. So true worship is a result of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then, sixth, prayer. You cannot pray effectively unless you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Psalm 66:18 tells us that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. The solution to that is 1 John 1, 9. And once we recover fellowship, then we can pray effectively. But if we are not in, not in fellowship, then our prayers will go no higher than the ceiling. We're just flapping our jaw or going through a mental exercise, but we have to be in fellowship first before we can have an effective prayer life. So those are the results of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Imitation of Christ, production of divine good, understanding the Word, witnessing, worship, and prayer. Point nine. Emotion or ecstatics are not a characteristic benchmark or barometer of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. Emotion or ecstatics is not characteristic of the filling of the Holy Spirit during the church age or any other dispensation. See, every now and then people get the idea, you look at Joel 2... Peter's quoted Joel 2 and Acts 2. It says, Your young men will dream dreams, your old men will see visions, and your daughters will prophesy. That that's some sort of ecstatics. It's not. It wasn't ecstatics in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when God the Holy Spirit communicated revelation to a prophet, He did it sometimes through dreams or visions. He did it sometimes through uh, uh, appearing to them and talking to them overtly. Sometimes he did it by making the thoughts, speaking to them just internally in their mind, but it was not done through emotion. It was done through propositional truth. Even if it was in a dream, there was propositional truth there in images, and they recorded those images as Daniel did and others did, and God gave them the interpretation. That's not emotion. It was directed to the thinking part of the soul, not to the emoting part of the soul. So there's never a place for emotion or ecstatics. Uh, prophecy, dreams, visions were not emotional or ecstatic in the Old Testament. They're not going to be in the millennium. So emotion and ecstatics have no place and are not to be confused with the filling of the, of the Spirit. So no matter how emotional you get, it doesn't mean that you're any closer to God. Now, that covers the spiritual life, the unique spiritual life of the church age. And that brings us to the last segment of understanding of the church age, and that is 
the church age and the angelic conflict. The church age and the angelic conflict. There are several passages of scripture that tell us that this is a unique time for angelic observation of the human race. For example, in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, Paul said, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all. He's exhibiting us. The apostles there represent not just the apostles, but all of the church, that we are exhibited before the angels because we have become a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. This tells us that angels are watching us. They are observing us. They are learning things from us. They can learn in no other way. Furthermore, how we comport ourselves in terms of understanding divine establishment truth and spheres of authority within our lives is also vital. Remember, one of the key issues in, this, in the angelic conflict is authority. That was what the, the failure of Lucifer in the prehistoric angelic conflict is that he rejected the authority of God. And so one of the things that God is teaching in the angelic conflict is the importance of submission to his authority and authority orientation. And if that's not there, it is uh, a sign that, there is, that we have failed and it dishonors us and dishonors God. Now, this is exhibited in one passage in 1 Corinthians 11.10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And the passage there is talking about women who come and, and uh, pray and prophesy without a head covering, which is defined in the passage as their hair. A, women, a woman's hair should be longer then man's hair. You know, that's the same passage that says, doesn't nature itself teach you that uh, a man should not have long hair? Now, how long is long? That's always been the question. So you have shorter hair on men, longer hair on women. It doesn't matter how long the man's hair is as long as the woman's hair is longer. So if you're going to have women going around with their hair shorn, guys are going to have to look like old Tom over here and start shaving their heads all the time. So uh, women ought to have a symbol of authority on their head, and that was a, a sign that they were oriented to the authority of their husband in the household and the authority of the pastor at church. So failure to do that is a uh, sign of failure to grow or advance in the spiritual life but when you do that, it signifies authority orientation to the angels. One passage I skipped was 1 Corinthians 6.3, where Paul says, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? We are in preparation now as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who advance to maturity, who do not have shame at the, Lord, at the judgment seat of Christ, we are the ones who will not only rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom, but we will judge angels according to 1 Corinthians 6.3 because of the doctrine we have learned. We will know things and understand things about God because of the doctrine in our soul that angels do not know and have not learned in terms of epinosis doctrine. 1 Timothy 3.16 By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, talking about the incarnation of Christ, was vindicated by means of the Spirit. He lived his life in the humanity of Christ by means of the Spirit. Beheld by angels, they watched him, they learned from him. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So there were things they learned about God and about spiritual life by watching Christ. 1 Timothy 5.21 Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen or elect angels. So there is a witness element from the angels to, to what is going on in the church and believers advancing in the spiritual life. And then 1 Peter 1.12 says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
So in terms of the doctrine that we learn and apply, the angels are learning things from watching us that they can learn in no other way. So we are exhibited, as Paul says, before the angels in order to learn certain things and in preparation for our eventual role in judging or evaluating the angels. Now, having said that, I want to wrap up by going over about 13 points related to uh, what what God is teaching the angels and God is illustrating through mankind in the angelic conflict. This relates to the original charge of Lucifer at the time that God charged them with his sin and fall in eternity past, sentenced them to the lake of fire, we can uh, extrapolate from Scripture that Satan must have done so, must have hurled some sort of challenge at God related to uh, his, God's justice, his integrity. Lord, uh, how can you, a just and loving God, send his creatures to the lake of fire? That was probably part of it. Another part of it would involve how can you sentence me to the lake of fire? You haven't even given me a chance to prove what I can do. And you have an emphasis throughout the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation on certain character qualities and attributes that are evidenced in the life of Christ and to be evidenced in the life of the believer that are in direct opposition to the character qualities that Satan exhibited in his fall. He exhibited pride, arrogance, and rebelliousness to authority. And in the Scriptures, we are uh, enjoined over and over again to be submissive to the authorities that God places over us. We are to have an attitude of humility exhibited by being servants. Christ came uh, not to rule, but to be a servant. All of this is to exhibit the fact that Satan cannot, will not, that no creature ever can be successful at any endeavor apart from 100% radical exclusive dependence upon God and relying upon Him. So what are some of the things that are being taught in relation to the church age? Now, these 13 points basically have been summarized from things I've taught earlier in the, this um, dispensation series. And one of the seminary students who uh, regularly gets tapes uh, named David Dunn down in Houston went through and summarized these points from what I've taught earlier. First of all, uh, we, God is demonstrating that he alone has the right to rule over his creation. No creature can ever successfully rule any aspect of creation apart from dependence upon him. The second thing that God is demonstrating is his exclusive right or his right to be the sole object of worship in the universe. That no one else and nothing else has the right to be worshipped. Third, God is demonstrating the supremacy of his essence over all creation. That everything that God is, is necessary to rule over all of creation. That no creature can come close to the wisdom of God, the omnipotence of God, the omnipresence of God, the integrity of God. Therefore, no creature can even come close to, to, to trying to rule even the smallest segment of creation and being successful. Fourth, God is demonstrating the importance of authority orientation. Authority orientation is not something God established for a fallen community, for a fallen world. It was something that is even present in the Godhead. Jesus Christ, who is perfect without sin, said, I can do nothing unless the Father gives it to me. There is authority orientation within the Godhead related to their roles. So how can a creature think that he can live without authority orientation? Fifth, God is demonstrating the supremacy of dependence upon him and the futility of independence from him. The supremacy of dependence upon him and the futility of independence from him. That's what faith is all about. Faith means we are dependent upon what God said. It's not dependent upon how we feel, what we think, what our experience tells us. In fact, you know you're believing God when it runs counter to every sense information you have. You're trusting the Word of God 
despite your emotions, despite your feelings, despite your experience, you're going to trust what the Word of God says because it is the Word of God. Sixth, that God's perfect justice, God was perfectly just in sending Satan to the lake of fire. That there is no violation of his character by, by sending Satan and the fallen angels to the lake of fire. Seventh, God is demonstrating his right as the creator to be the object of his creature's love. God is demonstrating his right as the creator to be the sole object of his creature's love. We are to love Him with all our strength, mind, soul, and will. Point number eight. He is demonstrating the importance of grace orientation and how it functions, that everything depends upon who and what God is, who God is, what Christ did on the cross, and not on who we are or what we do. So we have to learn to be dependent upon God and understand that it's Him and not us. Point number nine, God is demonstrating His absolute exclusive right to be obeyed as well as His absolute exclusive right to judge His creatures according to His own perfect standards. God is God and that means He has the right to do what He wills because He is God. Point number ten, God is demonstrating why the creature cannot live apart from the Creator. God is demonstrating why the creature cannot live apart from the Creator, that the creature can have no happiness, no stability, can have no success whatsoever apart from radical, exclusive dependence upon the Creator. Point 11. God is demonstrating why Satan should not be allowed to rule his own domain as an independent creature, that Satan's optimism as well as man's optimism in their own abilities, apart from God, will fail. God is demonstrating why Satan should not be allowed to rule his own domain. That's what Satan wants. I want to be like God. I want to rule my own domain. But God is demonstrating that he doesn't have the capacity to. See, Satan's goal is to bring about world peace and happiness for mankind. The very fact that there's famine, war, calamity, destruction is a testimony to Satan's inability to control the world and to be the God he claims he can be. So God is demonstrating that that Satan is incapable. No creature is capable of ruling the domain independent from God. Point number 12, that the honor and glory for the creature only comes by honoring and glorifying the Creator first. God is demonstrating that you only gain honor and glory in a secondary sense, in a subsidiary sense. It only comes by putting God in the place of honor and glory, and as a result of that, the creature then receives secondary honor and glory, but you cannot be glorified apart from putting God first. And finally, point number 13 God is demonstrating the importance of being a humble servant to the Creator as well as demonstrating all the character qualities necessary for a creature who will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. He is demonstrating the importance of being a loyal, humble servant. See, if ultimately the goal is for us to rule and reign with Christ, we have to learn how to do that. And if the ultimate standard is humility and authority orientation to Christ, Christ is not going to rule eternity in the future and give us responsibilities if we're not going to obey Him in the process. If we're not going to recognize our primary job is to serve Him and to serve those for whom we're responsible. And so if we don't learn humility and servanthood now, then it's not going to be in place in our soul when we are raptured. We take with us in our soul whatever character we have developed in this life. Some of us are going to have much more than others. The only way we're going to know is once we get uh, to the judgment seat of Christ. And it's going to be on the basis of how we have passed the test, how we've applied doctrine, how we've grown and matured as believers and learned these principles and and, uh, seen these aspects of character develop in our lives that we will be rewarded and that will determine where we rule and reign and operate during the millennial kingdom and in eternity.
So that is the role, that is what God is teaching in the angelic conflict. So that wraps up our study of the church age. And next time we're going to come back and look at the doctrine of pre-trib rapture, the ending of the church age. The pre-trib rapture is not the beginning of the tribulation. It is the end of the church age. It is not related to Israel. It is related to the church. And it is the preparatory stage to the judgment seat of Christ. So it is a doctrine that is much debated. So next time we will look at the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we've had this opportunity to study your word, to look at the unique aspects of the church age and how in the ministry of God the Holy Spirit you are preparing us in in ways you have prepared no other believers in church history for a future to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Father, this is a challenge to us to take the mandates of Scripture seriously, to be filled with the Spirit and walk by the Spirit and to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray that we would not treat these things lightly, but that we would be willing to step up to the challenge and be willing to glorify you, to live lives that glorify you both now and for eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.